Hi, my name is Jake Knoll, the current president of the Rotary Club of Mesquite. One of the Mesquite Rotary Club's local projects is to bring holiday gifts to school children. The majority of children at the Beaver Dam Elementary School are below the economic poverty line. Join us by donating gifts for children ages 5 through 13. Donations must be received by December 10th. Please do not wrap your gifts. The teachers will choose gifts which have special meaning for each child. If you're unable to shop, monetary gifts will be used to purchase gifts. Thank you for your generosity to our community. If you have any questions, please call our gift chairperson at 805-391-4674. We will make arrangements for the pickup or the drop-off of gifts. Please make checks payable to the Mesquite Rotary Foundation. Thanks again. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, Virgin Valley Artists Association welcomes you to the Art Box, recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone of all ages. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, or on Facebook as Mesquite Fine Art Center, also on Facebook, The Art Box. Welcome, Marissa Futerneck, to our podcast. And I met Marissa during Modern Desert Markings. So the exhibition was at the Barracks Museum of Art at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, March to July of this year. And we made those site visits back in November, December of last year. And I was really excited to be a part of that exhibition, not because I'm interested in land art, because I actually am not that interested at all in land art, but I wanted to have an excuse to do some research in Las Vegas and make those site visits out to those places in the deserts around Las Vegas. I knew that there wasn't really going to be any evidence of the historic land artworks at two of the three sites we visited, so I was expecting that, and... I was interested in this idea of going out somewhere where there was probably no physical trace left of historic works, but the process of watching other people trying to find evidence was interesting to me. Yeah, it, really... it was it was it was kind of fun going out there because, like Jen, she climbed on down and and gathered up soil. Yeah, I know that um, Miss Av she sat down in a chair and did some poetry, and someone collected. I think it was um, Rochelle collected junk and trash. Yeah, and so I was out there taking photographs with my many different cameras. So I work with analog and digital photography now. For a long time, I just worked with analog photography, but I still shoot thirty-five millimeter slides and other analog film formats. And so when we were making those site visits, I had a bunch of different cameras with me and I was shooting lots of photographs and also just learning from you all. 
and and things that you had to say about being out there and and that was actually only part of the research that I did for the work that I made for the exhibition so all of the artists were invited to make a new work for modern desert markings and it was a fairly tight turnarounds at least for me because the work that I made was somewhat ambitious um, it's a video slideshow work that consists of lots and lots of photographs that I shot and a voiceover narration that I wrote. And I had expected to be making a work that was maybe 10 to 12 minutes long. And the finished work ended up being just over 24 minutes long because there's just so much to consider about the desert in around Las Vegas and so many ideas. And, um, it's just such an expansive place to think about. I made a few of those site visits out there. I also went to some other places on my own, like the Atomic Testing Museum, and trying to drive around the test site, the perimeter of the test site, and um, going up to Rachel. I also actually have some photographic material in the work that I made that's from places like Death Valley, Valley of Fire, Red Rock Canyon. I went to Boulder City. I went to Hoover Dam. That was an important location for me for making the work that I made. So so the site visits that we made to the places where historic land artworks had been created were kind of only part of the the trips for me and part of the research process for making the work that I made. What did you think of um, Seven Magic Mountains? I mean, <laughs> it's not my kind of thing. And actually, I had to go back to Jean Dry Lake, which was one of the locations of historic land artworks that we were considering for the exhibition. The idea of the exhibition was that all of the artists were responding to this handful of historic land artworks that had been created uh, around Las Vegas. I had gotten some bad information the first time I went on my own to Jean Dry Lake, and I was told to park at Seven Magic Mountains and then walk. <laughs> and I was there on my, it was like on my way back to LA. It was towards the end of the day, the sun was setting, and I start walking out into the desert on my own and thinking, the Dry Lake seems very far away. <laughs> the I don't think I'm going to make away. it there. I don't think I'm going to make it there before it gets dark. And that actually gets incorporated into the narrative in Mirage, the work that I made for the exhibition, which has this voiceover narration that mixes factual information with, with some fictional narrative. But that really happened that I started walking out there. And, and so then my next trip, I got some better instructions about how to drive closer to Jean Dry Lake, even with my little Honda Fit. Um, so I could actually get out on the lake bed. But it was actually kind of, you know, I left behind, like, all of the tourists who were there to see mm -hmm. Seven Magic Mountains. And then I'm just trooping out with my cameras into the space that no one else seems interested in going into to try to get closer to Jean Dry Lake. I mean, that, doing something like that, that's like a kind of, it's a very fruitful experience for me in the way that I make work, having things like that happen. Marissa, I was looking at your piece for Modern Desert Markings today on my computer. The piece was called Mirage, and it was so engaging. I just loved the photographs you did and the comments about what the desert meant and felt like 
to you through your eyes. And I noticed you picked up on everything, including the trash in the desert, the bullet holes in the different containers and signs and the shell casings, just just all kinds of things that we see and feel in the desert, but you said it so well. Thank you. Well, you know, I'm. it's not a part of the world that I'm from, so I definitely feel like a tourist in those landscapes and in those places. Sometimes that's good because I think sometimes it's easier to observe things when they're not familiar to you. But then I also sometimes worry about like getting things wrong if it's a place that I'm not from. And even though I use fiction a lot in my work and I make things up, I, it's still important to me to have a certain rigor with truthfulness about certain kinds of things. So like in making the work for Modern Desert Markings, when I'd finished the first draft of it, I sent it to the exhibition curators and people from the museum to make sure that there was like nothing that was wrong or that stood out to people who are actually local and knew these places much better than I did as an outsider. Did you start out as a traditional artist drawing and painting realistically? I did, yeah. Or, I mean, I was, yeah, working, working from life, not exclusively, but I was, I was a painter very much so. And when I um, started college, um, I was a painter and I did my undergraduate degree at Yale, which was a really great art program, um, very rigorous, but we had to spend a whole year doing drawing before we were allowed to paint. In some ways, it was kind of a traditional program. The idea was that you had to really learn to look and to see through drawing before you even start painting. So yeah, so I, I went to Yale thinking I was a painter. And then my junior year was when I first spent some time living in London and I spent a semester at art school in London at Coldsmiths at University of London, which is kind of famous for having being one of the first art schools to have um, no divisions between different departments. So there was no like painting department and photography department. Everything was just all mixed up. There was no, I mean, people in art schools in the UK, there's no like, you know, learning how to draw first before you do other things. So um, it was really liberating for me to have a semester there and to start making work that wasn't using paint, that was more conceptual. I had started a project that was working with the idea of a rock star alter ego of myself called Marissa Starwell <sighs> and making all of this. Um, I'm really interested in music and music culture and so I learned how to use Photoshop. That was kind of the early days of Photoshop to make uh, fake magazine covers and album covers and develop this whole biography of this person who didn't actually exist. And it was kind of everything except the music. So there was no music, but it was all the ephemera around <laughs> this figure. And then after a semester of doing that, I was back at Yale and not, and that wasn't making paintings. So I wasn't allowed to be back in the painting department and had to kind of figure out how to still kind of keep making work that was a bit more conceptual. 
um, for the rest of my undergraduate time. And, and I wound up working with someone in the graphic design department as an advisor, uh, Paul Elliman, who he's not a graphic designer really either. And I'm not a graphic designer, but there was just a little bit more um, openness in that department to making conceptual work that you know, wasn't medium specific. And so I guess that was when I started to have a more expansive idea of what my practice could be. But there have been times over the years where I still return to painting. If there's a particular body of work I want to make as paintings, I haven't made paintings for a few years, but that's not to say that I won't one day be like, okay, I want to make this body of work and, and it feels like it should be a series of paintings. What's the medium you work with? Uh, acrylic. Yeah. I mean, as an undergrad, I was forced to use oil paints briefly <laughs> just so that I learned how to use them. But um, I really like the flatness of, of acrylic and um, and the paintings that I have made in the last sort of 10 to 15 years. I tend to work on like really, really smooth, flat wood panels. So, yeah, I, I like the plasticity of acrylic. So are your paintings more abstract or? Uh, no, they they tend to be the paintings that I've made in the last 10 to 15 years are usually of objects. I've made a lot of paintings of food. I made a whole big series of paintings called Some American Food. And they're almost because they're on these wood panels that have a little bit of depth to them, too. They kind of reference like signage a little bit too. I noticed I'm I'm looking at your website at all the photographs on there and the and I assume some are paintings as well. And I'm just drawn into them. It's like, oh, this is really interesting. It's a different perspective. I wonder what this means or what she's trying to say or what I should be thinking about. So uh, your work is something that people I'm sure look at for quite a while and think about. I think a lot of most of the work that I make is speaking in some way about or to the world around us. And I think that's important to me that for people who do not have an art background, there are still things, there's an initial layer of things that are recognizable from the world around us and referencing the world around us. So like, I don't make abstract paintings. I think there's a lot of access points for not art people to my work. And actually I'm very interested as an artist, I'm interested in a lot of other disciplines and a lot of the exhibitions that I've had in the last few years have been at colleges and universities, which I love because I get a chance to work with not just art departments, but, people in creative writing or history or political science or sociology and my interests run across different fields and the work that I make is borrowing from a lot of other fields and I think that kind of that's also part of what maybe makes the work accessible to people who don't necessarily have an art background because it is about all these other things in in our world you uh, your work in general, explores Americanness and the promise of the American dream. Would you like to explain that to our listeners? That's such a big, vast thing that it can encompass so much, but everything that I seem to make just 
keeps coming back to trying to understand what Americanness is. And I think that it was when I was living overseas that I started to really ask that question and make work that was asking that question. And there was something about being from a place but having distance from it as a way to try to understand it better. I lived in London for over 15 years. And it was while I was living overseas that I started making work that was more and more about America. And for a while, I had a really fruitful way of working where I'm back to the U.S. for an artist residency or a research trip of some kind. And it was like being on location for a little while, um, like the site visits that we made for Modern Desert Markings, um, where I could shoot lots of photographs, do research, be in places, find things out about them, and then go back to London and, and make the work away from the place that the work was about. And when I moved back to the U.S. in the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election, which was an especially interesting time to be moving back to America and thinking about Americanness, um, I wasn't totally sure what would happen with my work and if it was still going to be about that. But if anything, it's even more so about that now being, being here and having the subject matter all around me all the time kind of just makes it easier to make the work. You did Um, work about the 10 missing floors in the Trump tower. I did. Tell us about that. I'm really curious. (laughs) Yeah, that was an interesting site. (laughs) So I was invited to make work for uh, an exhibition that was related to architecture in London um, through the Royal Academy's architecture department. So I was invited to make a work that responded to architecture in some way. I made a work about Trump Tower. I spent a day in the public spaces of Trump Tower. I ate a taco bowl in the Trump Grill (laughs) lunch. And... I mean, that was an interesting experience. I rode up and down the golden escalators many times, and I I shot photographs and a little bit of video footage, too. And then um, went to some other sites in New York, to boyhood homes of Trump and Queens, the World's Fairgrounds, a little bit like with the work I made for Modern Desert Markings. I went to a lot of other places, too, that were maybe not obviously connected to what the work was going to be about, but that through fictional narrative, I kind of wove into the work. The narrative in Trump Tower involves uh, Trump going to the World's Fair as a kid and a whole sort of fictional story that I made up about that. But but yeah, there really, there really are floors missing from Trump Tower. I learned that in my research because mm-hmm. Donald Trump just wanted the building to sound taller than it really was. Oh, really? So, <laughs> so if you look on the elevator, there's just, yeah, there's 10 floors that don't exist. Um, it just jumps 10 floors so that they can say, he can say that the building is X number of floors high. Um, so what what floors are missing? Um, it's been a while since I made that work, so I can't remember which, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's a lot of times in my research, I kind of find these things out that are true at, that seem like I've made them up. It's a little known fact as Cliff Clayton yeah. would say. 
Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, I, I love things like that. When I find out things like that, they are often important starting points for, for making work. I mean, I'm really interested in humanizing history. And so I think anecdotal information can often be really potent entry points for people into understanding or connecting to bigger histories. You wrote in your biography that you made work about swimming pools, front lawns, the Hollywood sign, the Watergate building, Detroit home ownership, the corn industry, of course, the missing floors in the Trump Tower, hometowns of presidents, failed political candidates, and a surreal search for the cheapest gas in Los Angeles. Where do you get your ideas from? All kinds of places. Yeah, as I was just saying, the the idea of small anecdotal details can often lead to much bigger projects. Um, I have made a lot of work about American presidents, and the most ambitious of those works was an artist book that was published in 2016 to coincide with the presidential election that year called 13 Presidents. So it's a book of 13 short stories that I wrote. Each story has a president as a protagonist. Um, They're fictional stories, but based on uh, factual research. And then the stories sit alongside several hundred photographs that I took on a road trip across the country. So I drove 10,000 miles to go to all 13 presidential libraries and archives. And that was a really big project. I mean, that book is like a book book. Um, It took two years, that project, to make. But it all started with a visit to the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Orange County, California. And I went there kind of thinking it would just be funny. And it was actually such an interesting um, experience to, I mean, the presidential libraries are really interesting because they're not an objective presentation of history. um, And that's part of what makes them especially interesting to me. But somewhere in a wall text, I came across this little note that during Richard Nixon's wilderness years, he would um, work alone in his office and eat frozen enchiladas by himself for lunch. And the humanity of that detail got me really, really interested in going to all the presidential libraries and making that book project. It was this thing about Nixon eating frozen enchiladas by himself. And that was kind of like all the research I did in all these presidential archives, it was trying to find that kind of information, that kind of human connection to some historical figure or some period in history, some little tender detail like that. The inspiration for my work can come from something like that, from like one sentence on a wall panel in in a museum like that. You know, I, I'm really interested in music and literature and film and I'm very involved in politics and food is very important in my work, hence the person enchiladas. So, you know, even something I eat can then become the starting point for a project. I recently started trying to research the history of s'mores and that takes really? me down a whole other rabbit hole. Oh, I bet. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think my my interests come from all kinds of things, and my work's very much about place. And so, like with the work I made for Modern Desert Markings, it was really about 
this particular place and trying to understand what makes up this place. And, and that's this going back to this idea of Americanness. It's like all these different things that I research and make and think about is trying to understand what makes up this place. And food. Well, food is very important to what makes up a place. Uh, I'm just I'm I'm, I'm chuckling here because what you wrote down is you talked about you get ideas from all sorts of places. And at the end, you said and food. And now I know that that's where the frozen enchiladas come in. The frozen enchiladas, the taco bowl at Trump Tower. (laughs) But I mean, the taco bowl was important. Like it was important. I don't know how well you remember this. I remember um, it. The taco bowl was a thing. And so it was important that it's like the, the importance of trying to go to places myself that I'm making work about to just be there and experience them myself. I felt like I needed to sit there and eat that taco bowl <laughs> as part of the research of making work about that building. Yeah, I think food is really, really, really important to place and history. And, and it's something that we can all relate to and connect to and So how do you handle mistakes and the critic in your head? That's a good question. I think that over the years I've become much more confident in the work that I make. I try to be very rigorous when I'm making work, when I'm thinking about ideas for work and doing research. And I use writing a lot in my work. I know I talked about making books, which he's writing, but also a lot of videos or slideshow works I make have voiceover narration, which is another form of writing. And it's important to me that that the writing can be held to the same standard as literary fiction. There's a thing about like artist writing somehow getting away with being bad writing. And so I just try to be really rigorous all the time in everything that I'm making. And I think where I tend to have more of a critical voice in my head is more about the day-to-day process of being an artist and having a studio practice. And I'm constantly struggling with the notion of productivity. And as someone who occasionally makes paintings, but that's not really the main part of my practice, I'm not just going to the studio and making a bunch of paintings. And at the end of the day, I can say, all right, well, I made two paintings today. I made four paintings today. So that was a productive day. And I know that productivity is not, I think like we shouldn't even think about productivity as artists. It's like something very capitalistic about that in the first place. But I think that's where I have more internal struggle is feeling like I'm using my time as an artist in a valuable way. And I still, I think I still have some kind of really old fashioned ideas about what a studio practice should be. I'm very privileged since I moved to Los Angeles. I have an office space and I have a studio space at home, but I don't actually use my studio space that often these days because so much of what I do is 
involves sitting at my computer and that feels like less legitimate somehow and it's like time to spend as an artist so I think I'm still trying to I still grapple with accepting that that's just part of how I make work and then that's okay um well productivity is uh financially um advantageous as well I was just going to ask do you have um a job on the side or is this is this your profession okay yeah no i do have a day job i do part-time consulting work for an art gallery in london and i do some other arts project management stuff here and there i do also do the odd day of teaching as a visiting artist here and there. I don't have a regular thing, but especially in conjunction with exhibitions, I'll do a visiting day or workshops or something like that. So that's sometimes a small source of income, but... Sure. Do you do any commissions? Um, I don't really make the kind of work that people commission. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and in terms of selling work, when I have made paintings in the past, that's work that sells. But making an installation or a video slideshow, that's not as easy a, a work to be sold commercially. So yeah, so my income doesn't usually come from the sale of artworks, but it can come from my art practice, as I said, in terms of like being invited to do some teaching or be a visiting artist or something like that. I mean, I am very lucky now that I do have a good balance between the time I have to spend doing other work for income and the time that I have to spend on my own art practice. The amount of time that us artists have to spend on admin or applying for things is substantial. I do spend a lot of my time like applying for grants or open calls for exhibitions, other opportunities for artists. And that stuff's really time consuming. And it's hard to kind of get the right balance between making sure you're at least trying to take advantage of opportunities like that and then just spending time making your work. I've written a few grants, and I know that's very time-consuming. And then after you yeah. write it, you have to keep track of everything as well and do a final report, and so I feel well, for you Well, that's if you, you get the grant. Yes, that's true. <laughs> so much of the time, you know, applying for these things that mm -hmm. um, are not very transparent processes for right. selection and... Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, for me, that's like another ongoing struggle of just how much time to spend on things like that. And sure. But I do feel like I don't have a commercial gallery that represents me. And so it feels like my work's not going to get out in the world and be seen outside of my studio if I don't try to apply for opportunities like that. Well, absolutely. Steve and I are wondering how you got to London. Uh, so I first was living in London as an undergraduate uh, college student. So I I did my BA at Yale as an art major, but then I took a semester off junior year to go to art school in London at Goldsmiths at the University of London. And it was kind of the height of the young British artists, maybe the tail end of young British artist scene. And London felt like a very exciting place for art that was in 2000 I, I just went to london for a semester to study at art school and uh while i was living there i met my now husband so that's why i then went back to london and moved there after i graduated from Yale, and then lived 
lived there and worked there for many years and eventually went to grad school in London. I mean, really my whole adult life until a few years ago was in London. It was a great experience to go to art school there because it was so different from the art program at Yale, which at least at that time, it was very rigorous, which was great, but also very structured. We had to take a whole year of drawing before we were allowed to start painting class. I mean, the, the rigor was really important and it was really good to have that foundation because I think there's a lack of rigor in a lot of art education in the UK. But then there was also so much freedom in art school in London. And so uh, it was while I was at Goldsmiths that I stopped using paint and started making more conceptual work. So I came up with this idea of a rock star alter ego of myself called Marissa Starwell. And I made all of this ephemera, all of this material related to her, everything except for the music. So there were record covers and fake magazine covers and a whole like biography of her. And it was the early days of Photoshop. So like I learned how to use Photoshop and desktop publishing and Goldsmiths to make this work. And then I went back to Yale to the painting department and they're like, yeah, these aren't paintings. <laughs> you can't be in the painting department. And I mean, it was frustrating at the time, but I guess I felt like I got a, I got the best of both worlds in terms of styles of art education. And then I ended up working with somebody in the graphic design department at Yale, a British artist named Paul Elliman. She's not really a graphic designer, and I was not making graphic design at all, but there was just more sort of freedom in that department to be making conceptual work that wasn't material specific. So that's kind of how I finished out my, my undergraduate years. We happen to know an animator and then we know a mm -hmm. singer. So we can, can we co collaborate with you and, and start Marissa Starwell's? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, my husband's a musician and, um, and, and I, we were in a band together for a while, but it was actually kind of really important to that project that there was no music <laughs> that there was like an idea of what the music might be uh -huh. based on all of this visual material and then the sort of text around it but that the music itself the thing at the center didn't actually exist and there was even a part of that project for my my senior thesis exhibition uh, the graphic design mfa students at yale were all asked to make a flyer for a Marissa Starwell show in their hometown. <laughs> and they didn't know that she, they didn't know she didn't exist. They didn't know anything about her. It was just this name they were given. And they each made a, designed a flyer. And then that was part of my exhibition. And it was like an instant tour, like an instant US tour for Marissa Starwell with these mm -hmm. flyers from all these different hometowns. Yeah, I mean, that was a long time ago that I made that work. But that was probably the first work that I made that was like starting to get at making something with my own voice as an artist. London, tell us about your flat. Um, well, London is not a place where people tend to stay in the same flat for all their years. So I lived in a number of different flats over the year. They were all very damp. I mean, I, I don't, I really don't do now, so I don't have a lot of really romantic things to say about it. It's a very expensive place. And I say that as someone who now lives in Los Angeles, London is a very expensive place to live. And the quality of life there doesn't really always make up for 
that cost of living. I, I didn't have any um, wonderful classes <laughs> to talk about, but I did have an amazing studio when I was a graduate student, though. I was in grad school at the Royal Academy Schools, which is the oldest art school in Europe. Turner went there. Like, I mean, it's from the 18th century, and it's right in the middle of London near Piccadilly Circus. So I had a studio it's a three-year program, so I had a studio for three years, and there's no tuition fees for anyone. Free graduate education with a studio on Piccadilly for three years, which was pretty amazing. Wow. It yeah, is. Cool. The rest of the time, I was working at like a desk in my tiny flat. But I mean, that's been one of the great things about moving to Los Angeles is having space and having outdoor space, having space to have a studio at home and you know got the kind of classic LA garage studio set up and so it's been a good change I like the word unexpected too. I, I think that when we were talking about like where I get ideas from for making work, things that are unexpected are, are sources for me. And then I hope that the work that I make has things in it that are unexpected. and looking at art um, yeah for as long as I can remember and when I was a little bit older I got more directly engaged in politics and so I kind of had these these two sides where when I was going to college I thought about trying to major in art and also studied political science and I was really interested in campaigns and elections and I had done a lot of volunteering on campaigns and but there were two very separate things in my life for a very long time um, so art was always there and then politics came in gradually and it wasn't until maybe the last 10 years or so 10 to 15 years that I started to see a way for those two things to work together photography I did, I was just thinking this morning about the very first camera that I used when I was a kid and how crappy the pictures were that it took. Um, Hold it, but you're a youngster. You're going to tell us that the first camera was digital? No, no. I was thinking about that and I was trying to remember when I first used a digital camera. So I 
yeah, no, I'm old enough to be pre-digital. And, like, the internet didn't really become something that was used more widely until I was tail end of high school and college. So, no, my, my first cameras were um, analog film cameras. Um, but I was I took pictures a lot, but I, it was a really long time before that actually really became um, an important part of my art practice. Well, Marissa, our last question is... What has inspired you this week? Um, well, <laughs> I'm always halfway through reading various things. And one of the things that I finished reading this week that was unexpectedly interesting was a story in The New Yorker. In the, they do an archive issue uh, or a few archive issues so that the magazine staff can have some time off and they'll republish old things. <laughs> And so a recent archive issue had a story from the 1940s about rats in New York City. And it was so interesting. And I learned all these things about rats and the history of rats. Um, and I loved reading something in like a recently published magazine that was from uh, from the past and kind of thinking about how I wouldn't have known reading that that it was from the 1940s if I didn't say it was from the 40s. And I also been doing a lot of research about Nancy Reagan lately for something I'm working on. So I just reread Joan Didion's uh, essay about Nancy Reagan from when she was the first lady of California called Pretty Nancy. So it's a nice contrast between those two pieces of writing this week. I think that's kind of like typical of like a day in the studio for me. Well, thank you very much, Marissa, for talking with us today. We appreciate your time. We love your art. It's very thought provoking. Well, thank you so much for, for making the space for all of us artists to talk about what we do. And, and it's always good for us to ask ourselves some of these questions. It's been our pleasure. Marissa, thank you so much. Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Art Box sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, where all accompanying images and links are available on the Art Box page. Questions, comments, opinions, and concerns can be sent to artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Virgin Valley Artists Association. <laughs>